Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Hello divers. Louise and I are so happy to be back in the Diving In studio today. We're going to talk books and we're off to the Emerald Isle today. And we're talking about some very fine Irish authors, although not all of the books are set in Ireland. That's right. So we hope you'll make yourselves a big Irish coffee with extra whipped cream (laughs) and join in the conversation. Today, I'm going to start off talking about the first book that I've been reading, which is Days Without End by Sebastian Barry. I really love this author. I've seen him speak at the Perth Writers' Festival quite a few years ago, Mm. and his novel, The Secret Scripture, is one of my all-time favourite books. But I'm embarrassed to admit that there's something that he does with his books, uh, which I didn't know and I hadn't worked out. It's sort of an interesting thing that he does with his novels and I only just worked it out when I was reading this one, but I'll come back to that a little bit later and talk a bit more about that. So Sebastian Barry was born in Dublin in 1955. He's married. He has three children, the grown-up children. He has twins and then a younger son. And this book, Days Without End, is dedicated to his son, Toby, mm. who struggled with coming out as a gay yeah. man. Gosh, I look forward to the day when people don't have to I know that it's not an make issue. a declaration about yeah. who they are. I really look forward to the day when we look back and say, can you believe people actually had to yes. come out? Yeah, and, and were so concerned about it for so long and yeah. hid it and... Tormented Yeah, and tormented, that's such a good word. Shame. Yeah, just, absolutely. So I think they went through that with this son and so he wrote this book in response to that. Particularly in Ireland. Particularly in Ireland, yeah. absolutely. So this was published in 2016 and it's a beautiful and a very original story set in 1850s America and it's told by the main character, Thomas McNulty, And he is a very young man who has left Ireland at the time of the Great Famine. And the Great Famine was also called the Potato Famine. Mm. And it was a period from 1845 to 1849 in Ireland when there was mass starvation. It's hard for us to really get our heads around, isn't it? And it was caused in part by a potato blight that infected potato crops right throughout Europe. And about a million people died of hunger. Oh, I had no idea that many Yes, died. and about another million emigrated from Ireland. Mm. So the population dropped by about 20%, they estimate, or even more during that period. And so it became a rite of passage where many young people set off on their own, really, to emigrate to other places. And I think mainly people emigrated to England, Scotland, Wales... North America and, of course, Australia. Yes. We have a lot here. Yes. Including 
my descendants. So our young hero, Thomas McNulty, he's from Sligo. He's about 13, although he doesn't actually know exactly how old he is. Wow, 13. And he's lost his parents and his sister and he creeps onto a boat along with a whole lot of other destitute and starving people and he sails to Canada. And I just cannot even imagine what that trip would have been like. I, I gather that there was talk that there was cannibalism. But he says in this, I didn't see that myself. Mm. But, you know, just a whole lot of starving, wretched people who are just have sunk to their mm. lowest. And he somehow ends up in Missouri and he meets a boy named John Cole who's been orphaned at 12. So they're quite similar in their circumstances. John Cole has a more... And here's an interesting background. He has an Indian, American Indian great-grandmother and then more British ancestors. And they decide to stick together and they become very attached to one another. And they're literally dressed in rags and just surviving on their wits. And he he says at one point, so then our idea was to find work slopping out or any of the jobs abhorrent to decent folk. So you can imagine these two young kids are just going to try and make their way they're down to nothing. They've got nothing to lose. And another great line Sebastian Barry says is, we were two wood shavings of humanity in a rough world. Gosh. Isn't that great? Yeah, fantastic. His, that's, his writing is just wonderful. And they wind up in a place named Dagsville, which is a mythical mining town mm. in Missouri, and they see a sign up on a saloon bar that says, Clean Boys Wanted. So they go in and they apply for the job and they get shown into a room and there's a row of women's dresses hanging on a rack. And it turns out that the saloon owner wants them to dress up as women and dance with the miners in the town. Wow. And they don't hesitate because they're going to get paid. And and bored, no doubt. Bored and they get a bath Mm. and they get as much drink as they want at the saloon as long as they don't drink too much. Mm. So they end up doing that for quite a while. And the miners are quite happy with this arrangement. It's sort of one of those things where it's a sort of a sobering thing in an environment where there are too many men and there are too many fights break out. But they know they're young boys. They know they're young boys, but it's sort of a civilising influence Almost on Almost like them. a circuit breaker. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. fascinating. They do that for quite a while and then they move on and they sign up to join the United States Army and they end up fighting Indians and they end up fighting in the Civil War. So I'm not going to reveal any more of the plot Mm. because, as you can imagine, you know, life is cheap, it's brutal and there's lots of drama, there's love and they're an incredibly interesting pair. I absolutely devoured it. Mm. I just love this book. It's written as though... Thomas is speaking. So it's sort of written in his semi-literate, very colloquial way, lots of slang. And so it's a book you can't read quickly. I found it was the same when I was reading The Water Dancer, Mm. which was also written in that colloquial style. It slows you you down, doesn't it? really slows slows you down. down. Which is quite nice because it's then a very intense read, isn't it, it, really? And you savour the beautiful Mm. language and the meaning and you just don't gallop on ahead. But the other thing it does is it gives it complete authenticity Mm. 
That's what I really loved about it. So I was completely invested in these boys' lives and I was rooting for them and it's very well executed and I just couldn't put it oh, down. Lovely. I'm looking forward to reading yeah. that. Yeah. And just to go back to the thing that Sebastian Barry does with his novels is he bases all of his characters on members of his own family. Oh, so what, his ancestors? Yes. And wow. go, he goes back quite a way and they are actual ancestors of his and... For a number of his books, he makes them all from the same made-up family, the McAnulty family. Wow. Which I hadn't worked out. So The Secret Scripture, which is just a most wonderful book, has a Roseanne McAnulty mm. that she's in 1930s Sligo. Mm. The Temporary Gentleman had a Jack McNulty in 1950s Sligo. There's another one which I still haven't read called The Whereabouts of Ennius McNulty. And Sebastian Barry is very soon to publish a sequel to this one, to The Days Without End, which takes a minor character and I gather follows her journey in America. So I'm really looking forward to reading oh, that excellent. one. So I love it when authors have fun like that and bring yeah, characters and I back. Think, and I think, as you say, that stories from the one family and the way it's all branching mm. out, it's, yeah, it sounds Caused fascinating. Caused a rift with Sebastian's grandfather. Oh, really? Because he sat and li listened to his grandfather telling all these stories and then <laughs> used them as a <laughs> Mind novel. them. And I think the grandfather didn't speak to him for about 10 years or was Aww. very cross for about 10 years. Uh, he has a very dysfunctional family, Sebastian okay. Barry. He doesn't speak to his father. His late mother was bipolar. His brother is missing and he has a sister who he's very fond of, but she lives somewhere away from him. He lives in, I think it's Wicklow in okay. Ireland. So uh, quite an interesting dynamic. But an thing. Irish man with a dysfunctional family that has stayed in Ireland. Yes. is also interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So re I really recommend his writing. Mm, excellent. Fabulous. I'm going to borrow that from you. Yeah, gorgeous. So the two books that I've chosen to review today by Irish authors could not be more different, but they both deal with some very weighty issues, but they're very, very different books indeed. And the first one I'm going to talk about is John Boyne's book, The History of Loneliness. And many of you will know John Boyne. He's a well-known author and, of course, he's probably best known for the boy in the striped pyjamas, isn't he? Mm. I really feel that I need to warn people before I start talking about this book because it's written in the context of the systematic sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Oh, okay. I'm not going to talk about any abuse. And indeed, there's only scant physical abuse described in the book, if at all. But there's a, obviously, there's a huge apprehension of abuse and there's more than just a suggestion of it. So I think it's, it is fair to let people know, yeah, definitely. I think, before I start any discussion. And Boyne doesn't hold back. This book, you know, he's very angry. The book has nothing good to say about the Catholic Church at all. So if you expect that there might be a concession that the Catholic Church does some good works or helps the poor or has positive, trusting relationships with some of its faithful, then this isn't the book for you. Yeah. If you've read The Heart's Invisible Furies, which was also very well received, you would be under no illusion about, no, about his, his views, views on and yeah. his anger. I mean, just the word furies in the title. And when was that published? Was that published last year or a couple of years about, ago? I think it was 2017. Yeah. Well, yeah. this is 2014. Okay. So, so it was leading up. Yes. It's a simmering. Yeah. A simmering. And yeah. of course, I think the whole spotlight Boston Globe thing was 2016 wasn't it maybe 2016 maybe a bit earlier maybe yeah, yeah. earlier anyway it yeah both books are written yes in that obviously climate. quite a similar topic the hearts invisible furies the whole arc of the novel follows 
a boy who is the same age as Boyne and also gay like Boyne. Yeah. Right through to the vote, yes, the yeah. referendum in Ireland about gay marriage, and so and it's of course this book doesn't have the benefit of no. the, of the vote, no. and there are gay characters in it as well. Yeah, the main character, his nephew, is gay. So yeah, interesting. Yeah, very very interesting. And look, he has received a lot of criticism in relation to this book that he doesn't let up and he doesn't oh. allow the faithful, to retain some goodness and some mm-hmm. faith in the church. So anyway, the central character of this book is a priest, Father Odran Yates, uh, who is not an abuser. He's essentially a good man. He's entered a seminary in Ireland age 17 in the 1970s because, so we're led to believe, his mother has told him he has a vocation, as so many Irish boys were told. Yeah. And as a young man, of He doesn't appear to question that decision. But the book opens in 2001 and Odrin has been invited by his sister Hannah for dinner. She's been widowed for a few years. She has two sons. One is away working and the other lives at home. And when Odrin arrives, she doesn't appear to have remembered that he's coming for dinner. And as the dinner progresses, as the evening progresses rather, he notices that she's getting muddled and forgetting things talking about her husband as if he's still alive. And as Odin goes to leave, his nephew has a quiet word with him. Um, He's worried about his mother. But Odin dismisses his concerns and suggests that Hannah is just tired. But Odin admits to the reader he knows his sister is not well and he feels guilty but he just wants to go home. And he makes all sorts of internal pledges to himself oh. that he will see her again soon and he will be a better brother. And, of course, this inertia, this sort of lack of action, turning away when there are so many obvious warning signs, and this foreshadows the central theme of the book. And it's sort of at the heart of Boyne's indictment on the response and attitude of the Catholic Church to what is going on right under their noses. Oh, wow. It's a sort of, you know, moving metaphor. Yeah. Um, So Odin is the narrator of the book and it bounces back and forth between, you know, a very unhappy childhood with his angry father and then his years in the seminary where he excelled as a result of which he was given a year's post in Rome and then back to Ireland where he has his first post at a private boarding school where he stays for 27 years in a pretty cushy role He's very safe and he's happy and I think it's fair to say he's isolated from the Catholic Church. He sort of works more as an English teacher and a librarian rather than as the school chaplain. Right. I think he performs maybe a weekly mass for staff. And then by Chapter 2, it's 2006, and he's called for a meeting with the Archbishop of Dublin, Jim Cordington, who he knows personally because he'd been two years ahead of him at the seminary. So they've got a fair bit to catch up on. And during his conversation with the Archbishop, there is mention of a priest who was at the school where Odran works and has recently been tried, found guilty and sentenced for abuse of students. And the Archbishop asks Odran how well he knew the priest. And Odran says, not well. But he's heard the rumours he doesn't admit this right. to the Archbishop. Oh, gosh. He admits it to the reader, but he doesn't admit uh-huh. it to the Archbishop. And the Archbishop counsels him that in such a situation, were he to hear whispers about other priests, he should not tell the police. 
He should not confront the individual. <gasps> he should only tell the Archbishop. Oh, He's not a nice character. And, in fact, I have to say there has been some criticism of Boyne's drawing of the Archbishop. It's, you know, he really is a villain. He's not a sympathetic character at yeah, all. Yeah, but he's, mo- he's almost a bit hammed evil. up. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's a bit kind of a character. Of, but I understand why that yeah. is because, you know, you want, yeah. you kind of need that sort of almost overblown. But certainly a lot of people have recorded conversations with other priests in hearings and in the Royal Commission that we had that are not dissimilar to that. No, exactly. Oh, no, it, didn't, it, it actually didn't jar for me no. at all. I didn't jar at all. It was, no. it was very real character for yeah. me, the Archbishop. I didn't, and maybe because we have in Australia recently had yeah, yeah. a very senior cardinal yeah. facing charges and mm. being tried. That idea of, you know, we want to know, we want to control the, the media, we want to control the story did not jar with me at all. But then Odran learns that the real purpose of meeting with the Archbishop is that he's being moved for the first time to a parish. And it's the former parish of Odrin's very close friend, the boy he shared a room with at the seminary for five years, Tom Cardle. And Father Tom Cardle is being moved on from another parish after just 18 months. Indeed, it seems that Tom Cardle has been moving from parish to parish many times over the last 25 years. Oh, no. And, of course... Odrin has known that. Uh, I won't talk any more about the story. All that I've talked about today is pretty much up to Chapter 2 only. I think as the story unfolds, I think Boyne's skill is that Odrin is the narrator and he's minimising or rationalising what he knows, what he didn't know, the signs or red flags that were in plain sight along the way, and, and ultimately, I guess, you know, the terrible truths that he ignored. And as readers, we know more than Odrin. Right. And we put the pieces together more quickly than he does. Yeah, I so love books like it's, that. It's really very clever. It's yeah. subtle, but it's very yeah. clever. Look, not everything in the book did work for me. You know, there is the, I mentioned that as a result of his excellence in the seminary, he's awarded a 12-month position in Rome and he's he gets this very junior role but in very close proximity to the pontiff oh. and he also becomes distracted by an interest by his own personal attraction to an Italian woman. It just It's a, it's a funny little subplot, just okay. didn't kind of work for me. And, look, it's interesting because obviously the issue of paedophile priests, deliberate covering up, ignoring by the church, they're very clear-cut moral issues. No one's going to, you know, debate those. Yeah. They are what they are. But then... The book raises sort of slightly more subtle levels of complicity. Because uh, not everything is black and white. No, it's not. Yeah. I mean, those other issues are. Yes, you know, so where you suspect something but yeah. you don't ask questions. Exactly. Oh, so there's yeah. the different categories, aren't there? And I, that's why I think this would be a great book club book because I think, you know, there's those who know but believe that the church answers to a different standard. That's a yeah. whole new category. Yeah. Not new ca- category. It's a well-established category. A but separate it's, category. Yeah. 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 Those who know but they say they are unable to act. Those oh. who know but ignore the signs. So there's all these mm, yes, different levels. So and I'm not suggesting that any of those are less culpable. Yeah. But it's it's a really interesting debate. And I have some friends with a very strong Catholic faith that would love to chat to about this book. Mm. So, yeah, that's that. I, uh, again, amazing writer, as these Irish writers are. What incredible is it about command them? of language. Their command of the English language is just brilliant. Yeah. I mean, we do talk about Irish people having the gift of the gap. Yes. But, boy, does it translate yeah. to the page. Oh, it sure does. Yeah. And not just being able to translate it to the page but to tell a story yes. in a captivating way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the next one that I've been reading is a new one out and I've been really looking forward to it. It's 
Actress by Anne mm. Enright. She is a wonderful writer. She won the Man Booker Prize in 2007 for The Gathering, and that also concerned abuse in the Catholic Church. I can't really remember that one very well. I mean, it's quite a while since I read it. Uh, she was made Ireland's laureate for fiction oh, okay. in 2015. Yeah. And I just loved her, the, her last one, The Green Road, which was sort of a whole family coming back together and she just captured that family on the page so brilliantly. So I'd been really looking forward to this one and Penguin Random House kindly sent me this copy. I think she's a little bit like Anne Patchett okay. in that she composes really beautiful sentences mm. and her writing's beautiful, that's, you know, it stops you in your tracks. Mm. But she's also really excellent at depicting family relationships mm and particularly female relationships, mothers, children, that sort of thing. So in this novel, there's a second-person narration, which is quite unusual. So the reader doesn't know who at first the narrator oh, is speaking okay. to. Yes. So they just from time to time say, and you, blah, 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 and, and you thought this, and I told you that. And oh, yeah, it's not revealed. It is, but you, there's always that period in the beginning where you don't know who, it is. who is talking and who they're talking wow, to. Wow, Which clever. does keep your attention because yes. you really want to find mm. out. The other book that did this that I spoke about was Inland, that yes. Taya Obrecht book. Obrecht, yeah. And that took a long time to find out who, or not, didn't take so long to find out who was speaking, but who the person was speaking to was quite mm. a revelation in that one. It's not a spoiler, though, to say that in this case the narrator is a woman called Nora Fitzmaurice, and she's telling the story of her mother, who was a very famous Irish actress, Catherine O'Dell. Mm. That's a, a bit of a made-up name. And she was very famous in the late 40s, 1950s and 1960s. And she had so much success that she became a movie star in America under the old studio system. Oh, okay, yeah. Where the studios used to run the lives of actors and effectively owned them. Absolutely. And was able to say who they were to marry and controlled the publicity mm. to an incredible extent. I find that whole thing quite fascinating. And, in fact, while I was reading this, it did remind me of The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo mm by Taylor Jenkins Reid. It's quite a different writing style and it's not as plot-driven as that book. But if you enjoyed that one, which is about an actress under the studio mm. system in America, I think you might enjoy this one. I don't know actually what caused the breakdown of that studio system. I mean, it was a terrible system. Mm. People who were gay were not allowed to be gay and they used to marry off mm. a gay man and a gay woman. And, and yeah, really controlled their media presence to an incredible extent. So maybe everyone just arced up. Hmm. I'm not sure. So this opens with a woman, a student, who contacts Nora and says she wants to write a PhD about Catherine O'Dell, about her mother. And this prompts Nora to go back and start looking into her late mother's life. And it becomes apparent very early on that there are a number of mysteries surrounding Catherine O'Dell's life and, and mysteries that even her daughter doesn't know the hmm. answer to. So I'm not going to say any more about the plot because I think if you read it, you want to uncover what those mysteries are yes. for yourself and then follow what is and is not revealed. But it's excellent. Anne Enright started writing this in 2016. I read an okay. interview with her. And after she had started it, the Me Too movement broke, which was quite interesting timing mm. because there were plenty of predatory men hanging around this yes. character. 
And the story covers that aspect of her life and what it was like to be recognised by the public and then what it was like when her star began to fade. And she went from playing 25-year-old women, even though she was much older, to suddenly having to play 60-year-old women because there's nothing in between. And there's a a really gorgeous little section, which I was going to read, Mm. where she describes two of the men in her life and they connect to one of the mysteries. And she says, Two fighting cocks, the pair of them, O'Neill, impressive and long in a turtleneck and jacket, Duggan, a shambles in his stained suit, one a high curve, the other a low snarl close to the ground. This is how I dream of them now, like a cartoon in Dublin opinion, all vanity and comic violence, but they were dangerous too. I mean, they got inside you. Wow. So that gives you a bit of a flavour of her mm. brilliant writing. Her writing's quite spare, isn't it? Very you spare. Love that. Yeah. Love you, that. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Highly recommend that one. Lynn. I imagine there'd be a lot of female actresses at the moment that would be quite interested to yeah. read that book. Yeah. And sentences that you go back and just read again and, yeah. and enjoy. I love that when you read a book and you mm. just want to keep going back and Me reading too. over the sentences. Mm. Mm. So the other book that I read is Dublin writer Marion Key's latest book, Grown Ups, published this year. And it was a joy to read. It's 630 pages, which I couldn't read in one go, but I really wanted to. It's a family saga. The family is the Irish Casey family. There's three brothers, Johnny, the eldest, then Ed and Liam, who, along with their wives and children and stepchildren, appear to be one of those large, happy families that other people envy. They do everything together, constantly gathering for anniversaries and birthdays, holidaying together, And all of those events are meticulously and thoughtfully arranged by Johnny's wife, Jessie. But, of course, all is not as perfect as it seems, as it indeed life rarely is. Yeah, yeah. And there are some serious fault lines opening up. And the book opens at the end of the story. So there is a dinner party where Ed's wife, Cara, who has concussion, speaks some home truths. She's eating a vodka and lemon sorbet. Oh, I love it. I think someone's referred to it as sorbet gate. Um, <laughs> that and, is fantastic. And she starts to reveal some family secrets. Oh, I have to read this yeah, now. Yeah, and so from that point on, the book returns to six months earlier and then gradually rolls forward towards the fateful dinner party. I love books yeah, like this. Gathering tension. So at the core of the family are the three brothers who band together and they're particularly united by their dislike of their parents. (laughs) But the brothers, I think, were quite predictable characters, I think, particularly the youngest, Liam, who he likes his family the least. But the female characters in the story, the brothers' wives, they were much more interesting characters. They're much more complex and I was drawn to them. I was barracking for them and they're the ones that drive the story forward. So Johnny is married to Jessie and she runs a very successful high-end grocery business and she hosts and pays for all the family events and she sort of very sweetly railroads and bullies everyone into attending. She pays for the lavish catering and the holidays accommodation, which is always over the top. And she's well-intentioned and she's concerned about everyone, but she's pretty much trying to control them with kindness uh, and she definitely has a problem with spending. What an interesting character. Yeah, very interesting character. And then Ed is married to Cara and she's more fragile than she appears. She has a very bad relationship with self-image and food 
and Marion Keys treats this topic with the seriousness it deserves. And she actually does it in a very sort of modern and confronting way. That doesn't surprise me because she's such a smart woman. Yes, and and just says it how it is. And then the third wife is the pure of heart Nell, who's pretty naive about her marriage to Liam, and you'll have to wait and see and read it to see if he's the man she thinks she knows. And which is the one that does Sorbet Gate? Cara. The the one one with the food problems. The one with the food problems, yeah. And I'm sure there's a bit of Marion Keys in all of her female characters. I know she was the eldest child in her family, and she has said that she was a warrior. She was the eldest of five kids, and she took on the role of carer, and she worried about everything. Yeah. And there's a lovely cameo in the book from from one of the children, a bossy 12-year-old, and she's in charge of the sort of the gang of younger cousins and she orders them around and she's very funny. She lightens the mood, as children often do. Yeah. And with no regard for sort of appropriate timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's Bridie. She's a great character. And I think that Marion would also had a lot to draw on with um, her character of Cara. Yeah. Because I'm sure you've listened to interviews with her and she's doing the rounds at the moment, of course, because she's promoting this book. But she's been very open in interviews over the years about her own addiction battles. Yes. uh, Mental health issues and sort of the alcoholism that was throughout her extended family and, you know, the lengths that she's gone to try and find help. And there's this lovely quote from an interview she did. I'm just going to read it. And I'm not going to read it in an Irish accent. Oh, do, Luke. No, I'm not going to. But I will. One word I might. One word I might. So I've done everything. I'm such an idiot, she says. Anyone could say anything to me. I've been to psychics. I've tried channeling angels. I have done cognitive behaviour therapy. I've done things like emotional freedom therapy (laughs) where they tap you. I've done mindfulness meditation, medication up the wazoo. I am done. I am doing nothing ever again. I won't even read my horoscope. (laughs) And then this is the lovely sentence which just says it all. She's because I think I thought that everyone else was happy and I was the only one doing it wrong. Yeah, now she knows better. Yeah, just brilliant. And and by the way, I don't mean to diss those therapies. No, but but just the way she describes it. The way she describes it is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, look. This is a very short review because I'm very conscious that this book has not been out for very long. Yes. And there will be a lot of people who are reading it now. Yeah, well, I, I want to read it and now. And <laughs> I don't want to spoil anything. But I think Marion Keys is such an astute observer of individuals and family dynamics. And so it was interesting to yes. hear you talk about Anne Enright. And also I did think of Anne Patchett yeah. when I was reading this book. I mean, it's a very different style of writing. So is this. We've got three very different yes. writers here, but all have the same very clear eye. Yes. And, like, I, I don't find myself with Marion Keyes saying, oh, that's beautifully written. No. But I do find myself saying, oh, my God, she just nails yep. that yep. all the time. Wow. You know, she does everything so effortlessly, and that's the thing. So everyone will recognise something familiar to them in this case oh. and family. And many will, you know, recognise sometimes how challenging relationships can be and how deep we have to dig sometimes to keep them afloat. Yes. And how easily things can fall apart. Yes. Like one yes. sorbet gate. <laughs> it just goes. <laughs> and everyone uses the word relatable with marrying keys and I know mm. that that's overblown, that word, but I think with grown-ups that's because, you know, she's written a book about a family that we've all met. Yeah. You know, essentially. And in, or individuals that yes. we can all picture or we hear exactly. about. 
other people's Christmases or yeah. I can picture all of those characters. Yeah, I do. And I, I highly recommend this book. It's one of those books actually that would be great to take away if you've got a weekend or just yes. to devote a weekend to. You'll just roll through it. It's, yeah. it's fabulous. Yeah. No, I completely, I have to know about Sorbet Gate. I want to <laughs> yes. know what all the home truths. I love that sort of thing. <laughs> The last one that I was going to talk about just briefly is This Is Happiness by Niall Williams. He was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize mm, for a book yeah. called The History of Rain or History of the Rain, actually, which I haven't read. This is the first one of his books that I've read and I'm definitely going to read more by him because I adored this book. I really want to press it on people. I just think mm. it's wonderful. So this came out in late 2019 and it's a charming story of a town in rural Ireland and the name of the town, and he's used that in more than one book because I did read an interview, so I don't know if this is a real town or if he's made it up and then used it more than once, but the town is called Farha, mm-hmm. so, and it is Farha away. <laughs> and the landscape of Farha hasn't changed for centuries And a young man comes home to stay with his grandparents because he's had a crisis of faith and he's left the seminary after the first year. And the head of the seminary sends him off to have some thinking time with his family. And his mother has died, so he can't go home to her. The father's sort of struggling away in the city. So he goes home to these very sweet grandparents And the grandparents have one of the only telephones in the area. Mm. So all the locals often line up sitting on the fence outside waiting to make a phone call, which is just the cutest thing. And you can hear all their conversations through the lounge room window. And then the electric is due to be connected. (laughs) So this is set in the late 1960s, I think, Mm. or very early 70s. So they have no electricity up until as recently as that. And a whole team of interlopers come into the village to install all the electricity poles and all the wiring. And that's really the first time in the centuries that the landscape has changed and these great big poles are going to go in all over the place. And one of the men who is on the installation team comes to board with the grandparents because they have to sort of put them up Mm. in different houses around the district. And he is a complete character. He's sort of a little leprechaun. Mm. His name's Christy and he's full of Blarney and stories and he's travelled the world. He's sort of an itinerant guy. And the young seminarian and this little contractor strike up the most beautiful and very unlikely but gorgeous friendship over the course of the few months that the electric is getting installed. Mm. And it transpires that the border... Christie has manoeuvred the situation so that he can come to this particular town for a reason Ah. of the heart. Yeah. And our young sort of failed seminarian becomes involved on behalf of his older new friend as an intermediary. Ah. And also the narrator, the young guy, becomes a little bit obsessed and infatuated with the local doctor's three extremely beautiful daughters. Ah. And there are the most funny and gorgeous scenes with Mm. them because they are some pretty out there Mm. young girls and this sort of long-suffering doctor who really has no control over his daughters who are sort of getting up to all sorts of mischief. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. The writing is 
beautiful. It's wonderful writing. The plot is charming. It's full of heart. It's the young seminarian as an old man mm. looking back and he just catches the tone so beautifully. It's not over, overly sentimental, but there's a, a lovely sense to it and I strongly recommend mm. it. It's a pleasure to read. Excellent. Yeah, gorgeous. So what else have you been diving into, Lou? Uh, well, we had some lovely feedback from listeners over the weeks who've enjoyed some of the recommendations about our music-related podcasts. Uh-huh. I think way back at the beginning, you, you our first yes. episode, you mentioned one about sound as well. And yep. my friend Jane mentioned one to me a couple of weeks ago, and I have become an absolute fan. And it's called Hit Parade by Chris Melanthi, and it's produced by Slate Podcasts. It's been going since mid-2017, so some of you may already be familiar with Hit Parade, but there's only one episode a month. Oh, yeah. Okay. So Melanthi describes himself as a pop chart analyst and pop music critic. And the Hit Parade episodes are based upon the last 50 years of pop chart history. Each episode, he reviews an artist, their history, and a particular song that might have launched oh, them. I would love this. Or, you know, stalled their careers or yeah. changed the direction of their careers. I loved the Lady Gaga episode. Chris reviews all three A Star Is Born movies and the performances of Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand and Lady Gaga. And then the episode about the Bee Gees, I'm showing my age, was a great retrospective, really good. So I'm slowly making my way through all of them. I really enjoyed the John Bon Jovi one as well and the Prince um. one. And they're great for while I'm cooking. Yeah. Because, you know, you know, it's nice to have some music yep, on yep. and then there's there's a healthy dose of very well-researched history and some trivia and then Love the music. Oh. Gr- really yeah. highly recommend Hit Parade. That sounds wonderful. So speaking of cooking, technically it's autumn here. Yeah. <laughs> Can you believe it? We're sweltering <laughs> We're away. We're still sweltering. But that does mean that we've got lots of end-of-season fruit and vegetables. So yeah. I have been making some pickles and jams. So my girlfriend Sue came over for a day of cooking this week and she's a great cook and she made a huge batch of piccalilli, which is a pickled vegetable relish. I think she used a Jamie Oliver recipe. I've got a pot for you, Virginia. It's great with toasted sandwiches, which is great in this house because with my sons there is an endless... endless stream of toasted (laughs) sandwiches Um, and I also made uh, my onion and tomato masala which I make from the Dishoom cookbook which I reviewed at Christmas time. I had some beautiful, um, I know you have some as well, heirloom tomatoes. Yes, I love heirloom tomatoes. From the local produce ladies. They are two girls here in Western Australia, Lisa and Meg known as the local produce ladies, and they source quality products direct from farmers and makers. I love what they're doing. I know. It's a great initiative, isn't it? You know everything is in season. You know it's at its best. They've got meat and poultry from regional farmers. They've got these artisan butters, which I kid you not, Uh I could eat like cheese. They are just delicious. Don't tell me that because I've already gone a bit bananas on On your latest order. Yeah, the slices. Yes. I can't even tell you, Louise. (laughs) They didn't last very long. (laughs) But they are absolutely delicious, their products. And so I use the tomatoes to make the onion and tomato masala. And that sits in my fridge and you can have it on everything. Oh, beautiful. Sue and I also made some plum jam. 
So I've got a pot of that for you as well. And the only other thing that I wanted to mention was given our episode a couple of episodes ago where we discussed American Dirt. Oh, yes. The very controversial book. book. Yeah. So I signed up for a free week of Apple Plus TV because I was desperate to see Oprah's episodes on her book club, which is on Apple TV. And she interviews the author, Janine Cummins, of American Dirt, but she also had three Latina authors there as well. Oh, so they're all authors, those ladies. Okay, all three of them are authors. Different kind of books. Look, it wasn't heated, but it was quite tense. Mm. And Oprah was pretty good at navigating and sort of moving the discussion along. But I suspect that there was some editing. And so I personally found the discussions at time a bit superficial. And, you know, obviously the time constraints meant that not everybody could really yeah. express, you know, quite sort of... In-depth sort yeah, of in-depth views. in-depth views. And, look, I have to say Janine Cummins looked petrified throughout the entire ordeal. Media is obviously not her favourite thing to do. No. And it wouldn't be many people's no. favourite thing oh, to do. So the the author, Raina Grande, she was very calm and measured and she was the best, I think. She was able to describe what she didn't like about the book and what she did like about the book and I thought she was really good. Yeah. One of the other authors, uh, Ulyssa Arche, has received quite a lot of criticism on social media following the release of these episodes. I actually think it's unwarranted. She wasn't aggressive, but she did push back at both Oprah and Janine Cummins in relation to the book. She's a very interesting woman. She was herself an undocumented immigrant. Yeah. And she rose to be a vice president at Goldman Sachs. She's extremely bright whilst she was undocumented. So she would resist overseas travel because, you know, she couldn't travel while she was there. I wonder how she managed to get away with it. And then she later married and is now able to stay as a citizen. And she's written two books, My Underground American Dream, which is about that journey through her education and to Goldman Sachs, and also another book called Someone Like Me. And I've following the Oprah episodes, I uh, sourced an essay that she had written about American Dirt. Wow. And while I don't agree with everything, it's a really thoughtful and intelligently yeah. oh, written piece. I have to read that, and she makes some very persuasive arguments okay. against the book or okay. against parts of the book. Okay. And I think that it's fair to say that most of the criticism there was not reserved for the author. It was reserved for the publishers. Yes, and the publishing industry yes. as well, yes. I imagine, yeah. But I think some of their anger has become yes. projected onto Janine yes. and certainly a bit of it was projected towards Oprah as well. Oh. So it was it was just interesting for wow. having chosen the book. Oh, okay. So look, it was a a well put together two episodes, but I think it was highly edited and a lot of it was about the optics. Part of the episode was Oprah visiting the wall and I'm really glad that I watched it. Yeah. And I would recommend people to watch it, mm. but I'd also recommend people to read a little bit more widely yeah, okay. about those authors and their views because I don't think it really showcased the depth of their views about the yeah, book. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, no, that sounds really good. I'm definitely going to watch that because I think I can get Apple TV because I've got enough Apple devices to sink a ship. And what have you been diving into? I've been diving into two podcasts. So I just thought I'd mention those because they've been sort of ones that I've been really enjoying lately. The first one is just this little short podcast called The Squiz. Mm. And 
It's been going for three years, so I'm very late to the party. But it's an Australian podcast. It's presented by Claire Kimball and Larissa Moore. And it gives a brief rundown every day of what's in the news, but with an Australian focus. Which is great. Yeah, and it's only minutes long, like Mm. six minutes, nine Mm. minutes, that sort of thing. It's a squiz. It's a squiz. It's fantastic. They also do a free email that you can subscribe to and get into your inbox every morning with the news headlines. So it's a really great way to stay in touch when you've had a busy Mm. week and you can sort of, I suppose, then go and delve into the things that interest you mm. more. And, but fantastic Australian podcast. And, and does it do multi, small amounts of multiple things yep. rather than just one yes. thing like the Several Daily things. does? They'll yeah, just okay. say all the things. So, you know, it might be the oil price and coronavirus and yeah, excellent. Um, whatever's happening. It might be the top three or four or five things. That Daily snapshot, Daily snapshots, really, great. really useful. Mm. And the other thing that I wanted to talk about, which is a podcast I just adore, it's a really beautiful books podcast. It only comes out once a month, like Mm. the one that you mentioned. It comes out on the 15th of every month and it's called Slightly Foxed. And it's such a favourite of mine. Mm. By the time this episode comes out, there'll be 17 episodes in total. So there's plenty to get stuck into. Slightly Foxed is a quarterly publication run by two ladies in London and it contains wonderful essays written by contributors about special bookish memories Mm. and favourite books, mostly back catalogue books. And I've been introduced to so many fantastic books and authors through that quarterly. Mm. And this podcast is a continuation of the quarterly. So each episode has a theme and then they often have really excellent Mm. guests who are very knowledgeable about books and publishing And the whole thing is done in this incredibly cosy and comforting way and it's extremely absorbing. I just cannot recommend it Mm. highly enough. Well, you bought me a subscription a few years ago to Slightly Foxed and I absolutely love it. And I often dip into them, Yes, the publications. Yes. So I will be dipping into the podcast too. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the next one, which will be out very soon. So that's it for Irish Authors today. Uh, We'll be back in a fortnight to talk about what we've been reading and to discuss the first half of Middlemarch. So we've decided that for the next episode, we're only going to discuss no further than the end of book four, (laughs) which is still massive. That's page 469, chapter 42. So that's really like a whole book. (laughs) Yes. So if people can possibly read up to that, then that's useful. Yeah. But we'll still be very mindful. Yes. Not revealing crucial spoilers. So I'm looking forward to that. Which is going to be quite a tricky thing to do. It's going to be hard. Uh, Yes. Uh, It will be a challenge, (laughs) but we'll do our best. So I just wanted to say thank you to everyone for all the messages that you've been leaving on our Diving In Podcast Instagram account. Mm. We love hearing from you. And also please do us a big favour and tell a bookish friend about our podcast because that's the best way we can expand our audience. And do please write us a review if you can and leave us a rating because that helps make us more visible in the podcast charts and it helps other people to find us fantastic yes thank you okay thanks bye we really enjoyed today's episode thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too 
If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. She's got a page. Just ignore me. <laughs> got my pages mixed up. <laughs> I'll start again. Buster. Yeah, I'll just. He's, he's helping himself to my tissues. <laughs> I will just remove him from the studio. Bribing my dog out of the studio.